Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another edition of The Brown Bag. I'm your host, Michael T. Brown. Hey, follow us on Twitter, at MTBrown98, or connect with us on LinkedIn or our Facebook page. That's at Facebook.com slash TheBrownBag1, where you can post questions for our guests. You can also catch our broadcast on demand after taping or get a free download on iTunes. Have you missed any of our previous broadcasts? No worries. Just go to blogtalkradio.com. Search the brown bag and listen at your leisure. Hey, Mike, why don't you give us a quick update about social digital media? Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, we actually have produced a, um, you know, a new um, promo for that, so we'll just go ahead and play that through. Awesome. Let's hear it. Social Digital Media Incorporated is a 501c3 not-for-profit member-supported digital multimedia production facility structured to serve the public and independent producers of digital media, primarily for the web. Social Digital Media Incorporated offers state-of-the-art member-funded digital recording studios to allow its members to create portable, professional-quality digital video and audio productions that can easily be rebroadcast using any number of the hundreds of web syndication services currently available. In a nutshell, it's public broadcasting for today's generation. To put it plainly, any person or organization that could benefit from the exposure of radio, TV, or video will benefit from the low-cost resources made available through Social Digital Media Incorporated. Our goal is to help promote a digitally inclusive society through emerging digital media production standards that empower its members by providing a digital gateway that provides the tools and personnel needed to produce professional, inexpensive multimedia formats on a digital, portable platform to capture, deliver, and broadcast their message to the world. We are working towards our goal of opening the doors of a state-of-the-art studio to a community of passion-led artists who have a gift to share with the world they impact. We are already in the process of creating a new culture of mentors and apprentices 
equipped with the advanced production skills taught via informal education systems that will foster a brand new learning environment for bridging the digital divide. We move art from concept to impact because social digital media moves the world from disconnected to connected. Find out how to help us reach our goal at socialdigitalmedia.org. Mike, that was awesome, man. I see uh, you're really stepping your game up when it comes to the social digital media. Yeah, man, we're just trying to put all the pieces together and make it happen. Awesome, awesome. Friends, we have another great broadcast in store for you today. The economy, health care, community empowerment. As usual, we tackle the issues that impact us all. Today, we have an aspiring elected official and a, poli- and a policy expert that can get to us. Mike, would you please introduce our guest for us? Brian Woolfolk is an accomplished attorney and policy advocate. Brian has over 20 years of experience successfully designing and implementing policy goals at the local, state, and federal levels of government. Brian's active involvement in Prince George's County began during his undergraduate studies at the University of Maryland. While a student at Maryland, Brian was recruited to join the 1992 Project Vote Campaign. This labor-sponsored campaign registered over 30,000 voters in Prince George's County, Maryland. The Project Vote Campaign is widely credited with ushering in a new era of political empowerment in Prince George's County. As a father of two young children and the descendants of two generations of public school teachers, Brian is intimately aware of the challenges we face in our school system. He has been a vocal advocate of efforts to reform the Prince George's County public school system. Brian is a former Democratic counsel to the United States House of Representatives Committee on the Judiciary. In this capacity, Brian was responsible for advising members of Congress on constitutional, criminal justice, and investigative issues. Prior to joining the committee staff, Brian worked as a senior legislative aide to Congressman Bobby Scott. After leaving the Hill, Brian co-founded a well-regarded boutique lobbying firm. Starting and running a business is an experience Brian will always appreciate. He is well aware of the triumphs and challenges endured by our small businesses and believe we must do more to support our entrepreneurs. Brian is active in the Fort Washington alumni chapter of Kappa Alpha Psi Fraternity and a host of other community civic educational and business organizations. Brian and his wife Brittany and their two kids Cadence and Xavier live in Fort Washington. He attends Metropolitan AME Church. Brian has a BA in criminal justice from the University of Maryland College Park. He received his law degree from the Marshall Wife School of Law at the College of William and Mary. Mr. Brian Wolfhook, welcome to the Brown Bag. Thank you for having me, Michael. I appreciate this opportunity. Oh, man, we're excited to have you on. Brian, let's go ahead and get started. Why don't you tell our listeners about yourself, uh, your background, and how that upbringing led you to your political and legal career? Well, I guess the story for me starts as a young kid being raised by a father that was disabled that exposed me to politics at a very young age. Uh, when I was six years old, my father was helping out a, a, a young friend of his who was running for House of Delegates in Virginia. I'm originally from Newport News, Virginia. And my dad would pick me up from 
elementary school and bring me to the campaign office every day. So I had the opportunity to literally grow up in a um, in a campaign office and have those experiences at six, seven years old. Mm. Just watching my father and others uh, work with a candidate who was a young candidate running against the establishment, uh, believing that in, in, in the purposes that he was bringing to the table and believing in, the, in, a, in a new agenda and that the community needed much better representation. And he was bold enough and he was surrounded by people that were bold enough to see in him a vision and an empowerment of, of that community. And they ran that campaign, and, and luckily he was successful. That House of Delegates member that was elected to the House of Delegates, sub- subsequently elected to the state Senate, is um, currently a congressman, Bobby Scott, from Virginia. And so that, oh, was, yeah. that was my you know, first exposure, going to Democratic Party events and, and um, you know, playing with the stickers in the campaign office is what I can really remember. Um, but, you know, I had a lot of exposure thanks to, to my dad, who's uh, uh, now deceased. But um, I had a lot of good exposure to, 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 to the consequence of our representation. And so in high school, you know, I was the, you know, I was the odd, odd guy, you know, as a young kid that was interested in politics, following races closely. I remember staying up for the returns for Jimmy Carter's election in 1980, um, 1980 election, Reagan Carter, and staying up late into the night and seeing the Reagan one and being sad. I was listening to it on the radio, but I, in retrospect, I was nine years old, and that's way early to be following a presidential race. Mm-hmm. But I've had so I've had that interest over the years and had had the um, you know always had an interest, and, and luckily, I've had opportunities. To pursue that interest, I worked, um, you know, at University of Maryland. Was active in student government. Um, was active in a number of campaigns. Um, I worked on the presidential campaign of uh, then Virginia Governor L. Douglas Wilder. Um, also worked on Bobby Scott's congressional campaign, and started working on the Hill. And those experiences, you know, I think the more you're drawn in, and the more you see the consequence of good representation, the, the harder it is to. To, to give that up. I mean, there are problems that need to be solved and that can be solved. And I think with that, with that optimistic approach and, and, and pragmatic approach, uh, you can get those things solved. And, and more importantly, I've had some great experiences working with, working with great people. I worked, with, like I said, with, with Bobby Scott on the Hill. Uh, one of our first issues, I'm a criminal justice major from Maryland, and when we were doling out issues in the office among the legislative staff, um, uh, for some reason, I get criminal justice. I hope that's because I was a criminal justice major, and that you know it was the most important issue in 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 in, in the office for me. And um, as opposed to no one else wanted to take it at the time, but it it ended up being a huge issue in the office because of the '94 crime bill. Mm. Uh, the '94 crime bill had um, that was the beginning of um, treating juveniles as adults um, as young as 13. That was Mandatory minimum sentences, three strikes, you're out, 67 new federal death penalties. And at the time, I think over 90% of the death penalties were, were meted out to, in the federal system, were targeted to African Americans and Latino offenders. And you had all these different pieces, Racial Justice Act, to make sure that you couldn't discriminate in, in the death penalty was taken out of the bill. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a major uh, it was a major undertaking for the Clinton administration, and 
Bobby Scott, who was a freshman at the time, and a number of other uh, freshman staff um, and some more season staff as well, we were charged with change, altering the way that bill was moving in Congress because their, their sentiment was to lock them up and throw away the key. These people are hostile, put these kids behind bars. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had the opportunity to work with Lou Stokes and Maxine Waters and Mel Watt and Bobby Scott and Wrangle and all these people and to really fight in, in, a, in a unique type of battle, the battle in which you sometimes have to be on opposite sides of your friends. I mean, this is the Clinton administration, the Democratic administration, but we had to learn how to dig in and counter our friends. Mm-hmm. Rahm Emanuel was leading the fight for the White House. And I was just talking to a good buddy of mine uh, yesterday who was working for Craig Washington, former congressman from Houston, and he remembers being in the White House where it was a number of our CBC staff, Congressional Black Caucus staff, on one side, and it was Rahm Emanuel, and, who's the mayor of uh, Chicago now, Chicago. and Ron Klain, who's the chief of staff to uh, Joe Biden, I think, now. He was chief of staff to uh, Al Gore then. And we just had this knockdown, drag out fight about, you know, what this impact is going to be on young minority males. And that was, you know, fighting behind those, those, those lines and, and, and seeing integrity among members of Congress and also seeing disappointment because there were some members of Congress that, you know, quite frankly, uh, were surprising in, in, in not supporting us on those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you know, so that was, you know, I'm 21 years old and cutting my teeth on an issue like that and learning the system and, and, you know, learning so much every day that, you know, I've, I've internalized a lot of those lessons and, and seeing how they apply to our, our, our present day. One of the, um, big bills that I worked on when I was on the Hill on fighting was the, um, violent youth predator apprehension act, mm-hmm. which is a bill introduced by Bill McCullum in the nineties which, oddly, this bill predicted, it was based on a study, um, a criminal justice study, that predicted that, based on age, that African-American and Latino males that were then, at that time, two and three years old, once they got to be 17, 18, 19, they would be these violent youth super predators. Wow. It was a a study that, you know, the, the author has since refuted, but... Congress is ready to pass policies to build extra prisons, to lock up juveniles, to, to make them criminal for even associate with, associating with other, other juveniles. And wow. they predicted this cohort that includes the Trayvons. You know, Trayvon would have been in that, that cohort. So, you know, we had to fight that bill. And we, and we fought it successfully, but not only did we, did we, were we able to fight the bill, and I was an advisor to the members of Congress on criminal justice issues and constitutional issues around this time. But not only were we able to fight the bill, but we were able to convince our counterparts, who were you know, very staunchly supportive of the bill initially, but people like Henry Hyde, who's no, no liberal, um, eventually changed course and supported a rational approach to criminal justice that would provide opportunities for kids as opposed to building prisons for kids. So... It's you know we, I learned that it's not just about being against something you got to be for something and you got to be successful at the end in producing results. Yeah, and Brian, I've got a lot of topics I want to hit here with you, but as you were talking, something came to mind that I wanted to ask you. Um, do you think people have a vivid picture of 
some of the wrestling and, and, and fights that go on behind the scenes that affect our daily lives? No, I, I don't. I mean, I think part of, and we were talking about this before we came on air, part of the challenge is that coverage of, of these issues is, is not sufficient. It's very insufficient. I mean, we benefit greatly from having people like you with, with radio programs that are willing to delve into these issues and provide a forum. But outside of this and, you know, a few others, there's not nearly enough attention to these issues because people have different perspectives. And if right. our perspectives aren't, aren't heard and they aren't deliberated and you can't shed light on what's going on, no one has to feel accountable. So there are issues that happen all the time that we just never hear about. Right. And, and they're and, critical and issues. And <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't mean to cut you off, and, and I appreciate you saying that, and that's uh, one of the main reasons why we have this broadcast. I think in many ways, if you turn on – I'm not going to name networks, but you know, if you turn on right. – uh, the television turn on the radio, a lot of times there's shouting matches or you might have people yeah. that, you know, fall into ideological corners. And, and I, I get that, you know, I, I understand the party system. But what about the conversation? What about, um, you know, the, 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 the real debate that I think we need to be right. having? Let, let's start with right. health care. Let, let's, okay. let's talk about health care. Um, what are you seeing now that the Affordable Health Care Act is starting to take effect, and uh, what are some of your views around health care in general? I think the Affordable Health Care is a great step in the right direction. I think, however, it's only a beginning. The, the, the challenge with the Affordable Health Care Act is that we reformed insurance, but we haven't completely reformed the health care delivery systems. So there are still deductibles that have to be paid. There's still percentages of care that have to be paid. If insurance companies covering 80% or even 90% and you need a, you know, $100,000 treatment, you're left with a $10,000, $20,000 bill. And mm -hmm. that is still, you know, a tough situation for a lot of families. And, you know, there are issues with regard to, I was talking to a dentist friend of mine last night about the health care bill. There are issues with regard to, dental insurance that is not included. So he's getting a lot of calls right. with, you know, having to explain to people that dental insurance wasn't included in the bill. Now, it's a great move in the right direction. The challenge is that even that great move is, is under fire right now. We're, we're, we're right. fighting to keep what we have, um, and that fight's going to continue because it's a, it's a landmark uh, piece of legislation and, 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 and people that are opposed to that, that, that party, you know, are being partisan about it for no reason at all, and we haven't been good, you know, as good as I think we can be at messaging right. and, and presenting the argument in ways in which it's um, irrefutable. So, you know, I, I think health care is, is a beginning. I think, you know, there are issues with regard to – there are a lot of issues in, in the health care system. Where I live in, and where I'm running for state senate in the 26th district, there's, you know, there – talking about building a major hospital in Central County in Largo. Um, and we have hospitals out here that also need some, some help and some expansion and some capacity. Uh, a significant amount of people uh, seek health care services outside of the county instead of getting, getting them inside the county. And we've got to change that trajectory. Um, and, there, you know, so there are micro issues. There are also issues with regard to health education. You know, how many people are we empowering to be doctors? You know, mm. are we doing enough? Because, you know, most people don't get enough health care. 
are we doing so, enough with regard to health disparities? I had the honor of practicing law with Lou Stokes, who um, is the originator of the whole health disparities movement and, and uh, started the institute at um, NIH when he was in Congress on health disparities. And, you know, with regard to research and those types of things, and what are we doing with regard to our medical schools, our HBCU medical schools at Howard and Meharry and Morehouse? You know, so there, there, there are a lot of different parts of the healthcare um, system that we need that we need to do a lot of work on, and with regards to you know just healthy communities, you know are people yeah. comfortable walking and exercising and having access to healthy foods and the information they need to eat healthy, you know and and yeah. the culture and the community that supports them in, in taking those options. And and I I hear that thread you know as I heard your bio and had the opportunity to read it um, when it comes to some of the policy um, that you've advocated and to hear you talk about it. You know, I think you're going to be able to help a lot of people today. For example, you talk about the issue of health care, the need for, you know, preventative care, not just, um, you know, as we have to deal with the issues on the back end, but getting out there on the front end. And, and I think that is so critical. You know, um, what's, what's wrong with more people you know, having health care. Now, I'm, I'm not going to advocate any particular policy. That's not my role. But uh, I see a lot of, you know, what people are against, but what can we do to make it better? And that's the stance you took. How can we make it better? How can we make um, health care more accessible? Because it's one thing when you look at it from a standpoint of, you know, uh, talking about it in general. But when it's your family member who needs it, when it's your cousin yeah. or your aunt or your uncle uh, who's sick and is having difficulty, um, it puts it into a whole other perspective. Well, you know, I think, you know, this, this goes to the strength of Democratic Party. Cause this is no, in, in no way is this an argument that we should be losing. Um, if you look at the amazing stories that have come out of the Affordable Care Act um, implementation and you look at places in rural Kentucky where there are no minorities, but yet you have these sad, devastating stories of people that haven't had health care for all these years, have congenital heart failure, cancer, all these major issues, but could not afford to see doctor and stop seeing doctors for years, and it's affected their lifespans. And mm-hmm. now all of a sudden these people are getting care. I mean, that's a beautiful story, and, and it's a story that we need to tell and tell and tell again. I mean, like you said, that's the whole argument in a nutshell. Why is anyone against people getting health care? Well, especially when, you know, as a nation, I think in a large part, we're a generous nation. When, if someone comes into an emergency room, um, for the most part, they're going to be treated. Right, right. So in many ways, that bill is going to be passed along anyway. Why not do more to make it more accessible? So uh, I think you, know, you I think can argue this bill on, a, you know, from conservative principles, liberal principles, Either way, you know, it comes out. It comes out as a benefit. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's something with regard to quality of life. You know, I look at yeah. issues like health care, the minimum wage, um, college affordability, um, being able to afford, you know, affordable housing and sustainable housing as all quality of life issues. And yeah. if you work hard, play by the rules, you should, you should have access to all of those quality of life uh, elements and without health care you don't have access without a livable wage you don't have access you know and and, yeah, and there should that. be a, I'm sorry go ahead 
there should be a standard of, of living in which everyone in this country can have. And it's, yeah, and, it's, with, and, and, yeah. and it's obtainable. I think that's right. And I think with the almost 8 million people now that have, that have signed, signed up, um, I think that, that proves it in a large part. Let's move on to yeah. a very big issue that we've got to delve into, and that's education. Um, okay. Now, education is a topic that evokes great passion in many. Uh, mm-hmm. And I believe it's because the stakes are so high, you know, when it comes right. to education. It affects our economy. It affects so many other aspects. Um, what are your views towards um, ways to improve educational outcomes um, for those you hope to serve? Well, I, I think um, with regard to the 26th district, we've got a lot of people to work hard, a lot of parents to work hard, and students that are ready to learn. However, we haven't been getting the results that I think we deserve. Being 23rd or 24th in the state with regard to school systems and, and proficiency in, in our school system is just unacceptable. Our kids have to be empowered to compete with kids not only around the state and around the Beltway, but around the world. This is a global economy. There are kids in, in, in Africa and South America and Asia that are, that, are, that are ready to clean our clocks in the next generation, and we're going to be competing against those kids. As we, as we become more a digital global economy, we've got to look at competing with those people from around, around the globe. And our kids have to be equipped to compete. Right now, there are too many ways in which our kids in, in, in our county school system are not able to compete. There's some great reforms taking place, and I've supported those reforms, including uh, the county executives' takeover of the school system. But I think we have a lot more work to do. I think that just gave us a license to hunt, and now we mm-hmm. have to start hunting. We have to have a macro policy, which is at the school system level, which, which increases standards, um, stops just talking about customer service, but starts implementing customer service. Um, and we need a micro-policy, which goes down to a school-specific level, where schools become the beacons in their community that they should be, where schools are reaching out to parents that are not currently in the system and recruiting them to be back, back in the system, where schools are reaching out and recruiting businesses and community organizations and engaging them in what the school is doing. It's not everyone blaming the schools. It, it's it's creating uh, creating an atmosphere, an environment where people can can empower the schools to do the things that they should be do, that, that they should be able to do with the help of the community. And I don't see enough of that happening. Um, and that's one of the things that I will work to build into place. Also, you know, there's an evaluation and auditing of each of our schools and each part of our, our school um, systems that we need to engage in order to ensure that our students are getting all that they need. If we look, for example, in, in my district, 26th district, we have Oxen Hill Science and Math Magnet, which is one of the, one of the um, more intensive programs in the, in the uh, county. That is a Science and Math Magnet program. It should be compared to the best science and math magnet programs in the country. We have probably the best at Thomas Jefferson, which is right across the bridge in Fairfax, in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. So Thomas Jefferson just launched, just built and launched a satellite in outer space, and now they're monitoring wow. the satellite. That is wow. a nation-level uh, endeavor that most countries in the world don't have the capacity to pull off. They pulled it off at a high school. 
Our kids should have those types of opportunities. Mm. Or else, how are our kids going to compete against the kid when they get to college or they get in the workforce that's launching satellites in the outer space? When they when they try to get the job at NASA, who am I going to hire? Yeah. And, so, and, you know, you we, know, we have to change a- our standards and our culture, and we have to demand more. You know, and, and the demand shouldn't be offensive to anyone. You know, right now I think we have a right. culture where our parents ask for more and our parents are, 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 are shunned away and isolated. My treasurer for my campaign is the former president of the Oxon Hill High School PTA. I met her by working with her on some school issues, on some advocacy issues that they were having when they were trying to increase the standards at Oxon Hill High School. And the resistance they ran in was um, unfortunate. Um, but we've got to create an environment where, where parents can stand up, the community can stand up, and we can demand more and hold them accountable to give us more. How do you think we can go about making improvements to improve that culture? Because I believe that's critical. Um, As an educator, I'm I'm a firm believer, don't relinquish Mm -hmm. the entire job over to the schools. Um, Only so much can be done there. Uh, but, I, yep. but I've noticed when, when you give parents the tools and, and access, and, and let's face it, with technology now, in many ways we have more access to empower our students. Um, but oftentimes, and we know if we don't catch those kids early, um, mm-hmm. often, many times by the fourth grade, if they're not on reading, right. reading up to right. at that age, oftentimes the statistics show uh, in many ways um, they don't, students don't do better over time. You've got to catch them early. So what do you think we can do more of to foster that type of engagement, that all-hands-on-deck right. approach? Well, I think, I think um, this is a reform process, and, and in Prince George's County we have the benefit of looking at what's been successful in other places that have reformed their school systems, what's not been successful. So mm-hmm. there are elements that fall into play with regard to parent engagement. Do parents feel comfortable uh, approaching the school? Are, you know, who has to take, who, who's best to make the, the right first move in engaging a parent? You know, do you do, do, you do home visits, not home visits? Uh, mm-hmm. There are all these elements out there that have proven, you know, all these tools out there that have been tested that show that you can engage parents at a, at a completely different level. Um, there are parent advocates, which, um, you know, we had in Prince George's County Schools, which I think we're, we're starting to get some of the funding back, at least that's proposed now, um, which parent advocates, you know, as they used in New York, would reach out to uh, parents directly, give a call to a parent, you know, ask them how they feel about the school and, and what needs to be done, how, how their student is working on their homework, what are the upcoming assignments, mm-hmm. utilizing technology and making sure it's accessible to the parents. So they can get online. You know, it does us no good if, if we're trying to you know, do things online, but the parents can't access the work and monitor the work online. Um, there, there are lots of technologies. There are lots of strategies out there. The, the cha- you know, so I think there's, there, there are enough solutions. It, it's just a matter of um, mechanically holding the system accountable, putting into place the resources to provide those systems, and um, coming up with plans to implement those solutions and to hold the, the system accountable why those systems are being, are being implemented. So we, we've seen it done, and we've seen it done with regard to, you know, curriculum changes and uh, training and, and things of that nature. But we just have to, to put the management in place and at every level, not just at the, the, the central administration level, but at the school level and in the classroom level and, 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 and get these things done.
No, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned that about um, um, putting the right people in place. Leadership is so important, so important on on so many levels, uh, not just yeah. in education. Um, tell me a little bit about your views on leadership, your leadership style, and um, how you think you can use those skills. I would describe myself, or at least my my, my goals in leadership, as being transformational. Um, you know, I was a, a, a fellow in the Center for Leadership and uh, Political Leadership and Economic Development at the University of Maryland. That was one of the best experiences that I had where we were learning about leadership in one of the early, early uh, leadership institutes at, at, a, at a major college. And learning about leadership, you know, one thing that I've kept from that experience is the fact that you really have to be a transformational leader. There's There's nothing – you don't have all the answers. You can't have all the answers. And empowering people and engaging people is the most important role of leaders. And so my leadership style is such that I believe that we need to involve community organizations. I believe that we have an incredible wealth of talented people in the 26th district. And the greatest challenge is, is, is organizing them and leveraging that talent. We have the answers among us. No one person has the answers, and, and we shouldn't act that way. And right. we should keep engaged. You know, one, one of the challenges I think we have in, in places all over the country, not just the 26th district, is that we, we come out, you know, those of us that vote, vote, which is not nearly enough of us. But then we wait four years and say, well, what, what have you done? Huh. As opposed to having members um, that represent us that are constantly engaging us. So yeah. there's no way, you know, when I, when I worked on the Hill, one thing that um, my mentor and friend um, Congressman Scott taught, taught us was that, you know, whenever we made a vote, whenever we were considering any issue, we had to call through everyone who would ever expressed an interest in that issue to get their opinions. Wow. Because you couldn't, you couldn't effectively represent those people without talking to them and engaging them and getting their ideas and their experiences. And so that, that's an important part of, I think, representation and engaging people on the solution. When people are involved in the solution, you don't have to ask them, you know, lecture to them four years later, well, I did this or I did that, because they know they were part of it. They were empowered. Yeah. And that's, that's my style in, in political leadership. Empowerment is so important. And uh, getting others actively engaged is, is so important. I'm glad you mentioned that because it is easy to sit back and criticize and talk about, you know, what the politicians are or aren't doing. And I'm sure much of that criticism can be yeah. fair at times, but, you know, right. it's, it's different when, you, when you're engaged and you're willing to roll up your sleeves and get going um, to help address some of these issues. And I know Michael Fordham's been listening in, and I want to bring him in and just get some of his thoughts or, on, on some of these topics as well. Please. Yeah, and, and Brian, I was just listening to you, and I hear your passion, and um, especially on education and, and the things that involve our youth and the, the systems that's in place. And we just want to um, try to understand, you know, there are things that could be better. And, and you come from a unique background of being able to see, well, be in a situation, but understand how policy is also affected in situations like this. And uh, what are some of the challenges and hurdles that you think could be I, I guess better addressed in, in you know providing the right solutions for you know both healthcare and education when it comes to you know being in a position of power in politics. Well, I think 
there are a number of challenges specific to um, this district and, and, and this 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 county. Um, one of the challenges is, is is the culture of reform. Whenever you have reform movements in, in school systems or healthcare, you're ta- you're talking about change, and change is an uncomfortable proposition for many people. And so when you talk about change, a lot of times there's resistance to that change. In a vacuum, everyone wants better schools, but, you know, is everyone willing to to roll up their sleeves and do the work that they need to to do to get to better schools or to better health care systems? You know, and and there's sometimes, you know, uncomfortable uncomfortable moments in, in, in change. And we have to make it. Uh, we have to approach the, the issue in a way in which we first engage people, we then persuade them, and we persuade each other of what the proper route is to get to change, and then we work together to achieve that change, as opposed to just dictating this is what the change is going to be, this is the change that's dropped upon you, and, and this is how we get here. But there's also a challenge in the school system now because you have a you have all of these what I call artificial fissures. You have fissures between people that have kids in the school system, people that don't have kids in the school system. You have fissures between one side of the county, another side of the county, all of these what I call artificial fissures, which none of us can afford to have because everyone in, in, in this county is suffering in, in, in some manner or another. And until we roll up our sleeves and, and, and get all of these issues that divide us for some reason because someone said they should divide us out of the way. Um, <laughs> we're in a tough situation. I mean, we, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's amazing some of the, some of the um, disputes, so-called disputes that people kind of reference but really don't understand the, the substance of. So I think information is key, transparency is key, and getting the issue of schools to a very localized level. It's a huge school system, over 100,000 students. So it's with a, um, a a school board, you know, that's that's you know each school board member represents about a hundred thousand people. So these are these are huge systems. You know, it's a huge system, probably uh, a, larger than it really should be. And when we make it local, it it it, inv- it will involve people. If we can make it local, school by school, district by district. We can involve people, and that's a pilot program that I'm 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 very interested in, in, in launching and seeing done, and seeing the benefits from it. Brian, that that's good. That is good. Now, I do want to talk about the economy. I want to devote a good amount of time to that. But before we segue over to the economy, I want to touch on an issue that sometimes goes unnoticed, and that's um, veterans' issues. And I want you to bring this local. Bring this local for us. Bring this close to home, if you could. Um, The U.S. is clearly a nation that is weary of war. Um, Mm. And because of this, I believe that many of our citizens have become um, increasingly detached from the issues that pertain to our veterans. Um, What strategies would you implement to bring veterans' issues to the forefront, such as um, addressing mental health or post-traumatic stress disorders, uh, and, of course, employment as pertains to our veterans? Well, I think veterans' issues are very sensitive to um, Prince George's County and to the 26th District. The largest concentration of veterans in the state actually live in Prince George's County. And so with regard to the entire suite of veteran services, we really have to do a, a... 
a a credible analysis of whether we have all the services that we need that reflect the presence of veterans in this county. Do we need veterans clinics, veterans hospitals? Do we need outpatient services and outreach services? Are there things that we need to do to empower our veterans with regard to employment, contracting, um, things of that nature? Um, So there's a whole suite of services that's necessary with regard to veterans. And I'm very sensitive with regard to veterans issues. My father was a disabled veteran, and so I spent mm. a significant – he had multiple sclerosis. Yeah. I was diagnosed when he was in the Navy. My mom was pregnant with me when he was diagnosed. And mm. uh, so, um, you know, I grew up, you know, with veterans, you know, in, in and out of veterans' hospitals. Um, it's very personal seeing, for you, obviously. Yeah, it's very personal. Um, have been, been a beneficiary of veterans' benefits. Um, actually went to law school on veterans benefits for my dad. Mm. Um, so, you know, those services make a huge difference and it's very unfortunate and not to mention my father-in-law is a, um, you know, is a veteran from, uh, the army. So, you know, these issues, you know, of going to war and not internalizing the total cost and being slow to process claims, which is a problem. Now this is a federal government issue, but states, have filled in the blanks in other places, and I think Maryland needs to do a better job of filling in the blanks. You know, with regard to providing services, advocates for veterans that are that are Maryland residents. You know, a veteran shouldn't have to figure out the hookup. They shouldn't have to figure out the um, the the um, Leviathan uh, veterans uh, benefit structure. They shouldn't have to wait too long because they don't have all the knowledge of how efficiently you process your claims. The state right. should have a role in that, and, and especially with regard to the concentration in this district and, and, and encouraging solutions, whether they be federal, state, or local solutions. Um, we have a role in it, and we should take a role in it. Yeah, and if our, if our veterans and our countrymen, you know, can go in these foreign wars, oftentimes, you know, without a lot of fanfare and come and, you know, accolades, uh, I think – there's more we can do, you know, to support yeah, these veterans when they come back home to be able to find a job. These are often proud men and women, you know, yeah. that that certainly aren't asking for a handout. Um, but, yeah, no, no. you know, to definitely address these mental issues and these the suicides, and, and this is personal yeah. for me as well. Yeah. You know, my father's a, um, who's gone on to be with the Lord. He, he was a, um, a Vietnam veteran. And yeah. I saw, you know, the, the wrangling that had to go back and forth, you know, with the um, – with the VA, you know, fortunately, he was blessed to be able, you know, to get some services and, and right. even address some of those mental health issues. But yeah. oftentimes yeah. Uh, our veterans, you know, suffer in silence. And I know you're talking about it being personal for you. Um, this issue is very important. And, you know, the sad thing about these issues and, um, you know, they manifest themselves in, in different ways. Um, we haven't talked about domestic violence and, and divorce, which are yeah. – um, uh, you know, I mean, they're appalling the stats on those issues with veterans coming back and some of the challenges that they face. And, you know, the, the, the amazing thing about this is that we've known all this for years and years. You know, if it was World War II and they called it shell shock and Vietnam and, and right. Iraq War first, I mean, we, we, we've known this for years, but we just don't take it seriously, and it's unacceptable. Yeah, and I'm glad you point that out. Let's talk about the economy, and I know there's – so much we could delve into when it comes to our economy. You think about um, our growing recovery. Fortunately, it is a you know growing recovery, um, but still, we, we know there's too many people out of work, out of work, 
or have too right. little work. Um, right. What are some of your thoughts and views about how more uh, of our citizens can you know, get their hands on that, that, that rung of that ladder towards the American dream and economic mobility? I, th- I think with regard to the economy, uh, we have things that need to be done in this country. I mean, we have trillions of dollars in infrastructure that need to be infra- infrastructure projects that need to be completed. The challenge is is raising the money and financing these projects. But once the projects start and people are working and they're turning that money back into the system, the projects pay for themselves. And mm-hmm. we need to be aggressive at figuring out a way to get America back to work. And when I say back to work. These, uh, you know, the, the, the labor statistics numbers of unemployment are only those people that are still considered in the system. Unemployment numbers are a lot higher than what we see that they are. Um, mm. People are coming out of college without jobs. And, you know, so we're looking at a system which, um, unfortunately, based on long-term projections, seem to be a system that's going to be in play for some time unless we figure out a way to innovate the American economy. There's a study that came out of Oxford University, I think it was in the fall, where it was um, estimating that based on automation, 47% of the jobs that are now in the American economy, of the job categories, will not be around in uh, 20 years. Wow. Now, they were talking about innovation, but so they looked at different manufacturing jobs, and they're saying, you know, the technology is, is evolving so quickly that you won't need as many people building a house even, because you can build a house in a mm. warehouse with a computer. Put the design on. You have machines that are starting to get better and better. 3D printing is producing things. Things are starting to get better and better. The Internet's going to take away a lot of the, the mail delivery jobs and things of that nature. Technology is evolving so quickly that whole industries won't exist like they do now with the, with the type of manpower that they, they have now, even bus drivers. Automated cars that Google has been talking about for some years and has been advancing. You know, there may not be the same need for bus drivers. So we're looking at an economy that, you know, we're looking at a a recession that has changed the nature of the economy and provided excuses to, 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 to lower the amount of workers. But we may be looking, automation may be working us, you know, out of a lot of other jobs. So we're going to have to, you know, I think the challenge is great. I think we've got a plan, short-term, medium-term, and long-term. There are ways to do it in this particular district. One of the things that people are looking at is there's a new casino that's going to be built. The estimates were that there would be, be as many as 3,000 jobs. We need to make sure that people out here actually benefit from those jobs and benefit from the experiences yeah. of those jobs. Young people need to be learning trades on, the, on that project and taking those trades and empowering themselves for the next you know, generation. Right, but we're going to have to do some work to get them there and and to get them the skills they need, Um, and we're going to have to incubate more businesses out here in the 26th district. There are too many consultants, small companies, mom and pop, that could be very successful if they had the ample access to capital, if they Mm -hmm. had ample you know incubation services, so they didn't have to play accountant and entrepreneur and lawyer and everything else marketer, but they could just do what they do in their business. So, you know, we've got to grow our businesses in the county, and we've got to train our workers to be able to take advantage of future opportunities that will actually be there. And how those 
those different entities connect. Um, some per- some people might look at it as good news and bad news that are, that the nature of jobs in many ways you know are changing. Um, for those who uh, you know are able to adapt and adjust to these changing jobs and the changing technologies, um, there's great opportunities there, especially when you hear about so many businesses, um, so many jobs that go unfilled due to the lack of education or the training right. of the individuals that they need to fill those jobs. That's why I right. think, you know, education is in many ways the catalyst that connects to a lot of these other issues that we're talking about. We've got to prepare our young people for these jobs. They will get filled Absolutely. somehow, maybe not just by us. You know, Definitely. we've got to prepare our young people. Absolutely. And there's no excuse for us not preparing our young people. I remember being on the Hill in the late 90s and people talking about these technology jobs that we didn't have people in the U.S. that could fill these jobs. That was that was 15 years ago. Wow. So in 15 years, everybody that didn't have a job then, you know, wasn't even in high school then, could have gotten the training had we have responded to the need and would be, you know, a undergrad computer science major, Ph.D. at this point. Yeah. But, you know, at some point, we, we've got to respond and we've got to have that comprehensive, again, short-term, medium-term, and long-term solution to address the problem, not only today, but long-term. No, I, I, think, that, I think that's critical, and um, there's great opportunities uh, on the horizon. Talk a little bit about some of the individuals um, that have inspired you. And, and I ask you this with, with the premise of, of some of the topics that we've discussed earlier you know obviously for you to reach some of the levels of success that you have and making some of the positive impact that you've had um there must have been individuals that that helped you along the way that helped inspired you who were some of those individuals and what would you say to that person maybe that young person who's listening today who um who wants to help tackle some of these issues as well and and prepare themselves uh for that next level of success um, what would you say to inspire them, and who are some of the people that inspired you? Well, the first thing I would say to um, young people is um, that you can find inspiration in many different people. It doesn't have to be one Superman-type person, Superwoman-type of person, but you can find ins- inspiration in, in everyone that you in, in all walks of life, um, not just those people that you would imagine are doing that specific thing that you need, but the person that can inspire you, the person that lives their life in a certain way. Um, there are all types of ways to, to, to find inspiration, and everyone needs to figure out you know, as many ways as possible to find that inspiration. I've been blessed and been around some, 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 some great mentors and seen them in action, and I think, uh, you know, Actually seeing them do is better than anything that anyone can tell you. You know, when you see people act with integrity, uh, despite the fact, you know, there's no light on them and they're behind closed doors, but they still act with that level of integrity, you know, that's mm-hmm. motivated me. So seeing a Bobby Scott and a, and a, and a, and a Lou Stokes and, and seeing how they act and seeing how, how uh, substantive they are and how much attention they pay to detail. Um, yeah. You know, Congressman Stokes, is, uh, he retired in, I think it was 99, 2000, from Congress and practiced law at Squire Sanders, a big global law firm, until last summer. And his attention to detail at 87, 88 years old is still more significant than most everybody I've ever seen in life. 
Um, mm. You know, he he would ask me sometimes. I haven't told him this. I have to get him to listen to the interview. But um, one morning he was asking me. He, he was following an ethics case on the Hill, and he'd read some papers and, and looked up the precedent. And I'm meeting with him. I think it was 9:30 in the morning, and he's asking me what what I thought about the case and what I thought thought about the precedent. And this is 9:30. I couldn't remember what I had for breakfast yet. Um, and the case had just broken, you know, but I mean, that's the level of preparation that he, that, that he still leads today. And it, 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 it instills in in me the need to get into the substance. I mean, it's not enough to Mm. to talk about talking points, to talk about the just outsides of the issues. You need to know the issues as well or better than anybody else. And that makes a difference. That makes your representation a lot more substantial. The same with Bobby Scott. Quick Bobby Scott story. When Hillary Clinton's health care bill came out in the Clinton administration, I think it was 93, and it was, you know, this before the Internet, so we're aging ourselves, but it was they had to print the bill mm-hmm. out at bookstores, and you get like a 2,000-page paperback book of the bill. Wow. And I remember the next day after it came out, came out with a great fanfare, the next day after I came in, I saw walked into Bobby Scott's office, and he had the federal code packed up on one side of his desk, the the um, Hillary Clinton health care bill, the 2,000 pages, and a bunch of highlighters all over his desk because he'd already gone through the bill and highlighted different sections of different colors to wow. um, show where he thought there should be changes, critique it, and everything else. And that's the level of detail. He was a freshman member of Congress. Wow. And so, you know, that's the level of detail that's required to be an effective substantive leader and most people will say about bobby scott or or loose you know especially about bobby scott uh you know republicans are democrats and it's wild the way people describe him they will say well if you come to him you better know what you're talking about (laughs) yeah because that's a different kind of meeting different kind of discussion but you know so those are the people that i you know that i work every day to try to live up to that's good and i know uh Michael Forum's been been listening. Michael, what are some of your thoughts, views? Uh, obviously, this young man is uh, not letting the grass grow under his feet. He certainly got his sleeves rolled up. Now we don't endorse candidates on on our broadcast, uh, but at the same time, um, your level your level of uh, expertise that you're bringing is, is definitely uh, impactful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, and one of the things I noticed, and I just have to say, Brian, it is so refreshing to hear someone because my work centers around people who are grassroots folks, um, activists, mm-hmm. and uh, people who are, you know, you know, activists, and you know, who are working to to make a change. And you don't expect to hear a politician speak with the same passion and intent as, um, mm-hmm. you know, an advocate. So, you know, it's just refreshing to hear that. You know, it's almost like you can hear and see someone who um, gets rid of the middleman, who's the guy who's ready to do all the work that needs to be done and oversee the process. So, you know, I I just think that just your your background and your experience has brought you to a point in your life where you are prepared for that next level. So that's all I can say. You know, there's success written all over you, whether – you know, anything else changes in your life, there is a path that you've done a lot to bring you to this point. So I'm just want to just say kudos to that, and um, we wish you the best. Um, again, Thank it's not, um, not that we're just um, endorsing you, but we just know that you're a good person, and we can hear that, and that's just very, very um, apparent in your, your speaking to us today. 
Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And, Brian, uh, before we go, we definitely want to allow you to just have the floor and give some thoughts and impressions, um, um, anything you want to share before you go. And I, and I say it um, in much in alignment with what we've been talking about up to this point. Um, oftentimes when we talk about politicians, um, and oftentimes deservingly so, that it has, you know, some negative connotations in it. But when you hear from a person who's had their sleeves rolled up in policy and, and sees how, you know, it affects people, um, at the root of politics is policy, and policy affects the lives of people. And I think part of the reason why people have become so disengaged with politics is because on our day jobs, we have to make things happen and get things done. And we sure. know, you know a lot of things get done you know, with, our, with our governance. We, we know that. But it's refreshing to hear um, a person you know, not so heavily focused in one political party that they can't talk about the realities of how things work. And, and, I, and I say that to you definitely as a compliment. And I want to open the floor up to you to just share some, uh, some parting shots. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to participate on the brown bag this morning, and I think you hit the nail um, right on the head with regard to uh, what we need with regard to our representation. All of our representation should be substantive. All of our representation should be detailed and also passionate. Policy has consequences, and too many communities have suffered because We've elected someone just because we like them. They, you know, maybe they go to our church or whatever the case may be, you know, family, friend. Uh, we need to start electing people that c- can bring to the table substantive responses to substantive issues and be able to, to think beyond ego or personality or partisanship, but think towards producing some results. And there's too many place, too many of our communities around the country that suffer because we don't have substantive representation, um, and and it's and it's killing our communities. As you know, a policy advocate that that's worked on issues in communities all over the country, I've seen you know schools. You know the, the thing about my 26th district in Maryland, which is Fort Washington, Akakeek, Suitland, uh, Temple Hills, and part of Clinton, in um, Forest Heights. The thing about this district is this district is, is, is very similar to districts all over the country. Communities have incredible potential, but until we start demanding something different from our elected officials, demanding something different from the, the substantive results that they provide us, um, we're stuck and we're going to continue to get what we get, and we don't have to settle for that. And I urge everyone listening in the 26th district to support my candidacy, but more importantly, even if, you don't, even if you're not able to vote for me or, or would not like to vote for me, I urge everyone to support a more substantive engagement of our elected officials because without that substantive engagement, a vote is not enough. Wow. It requires engagement and it requires oversight and it requires involvement. And if everyone works together and starts demanding that, I will have been successful. Brian Wolfuck, we certainly appreciate you being on the brown bag, and we hope to have you on again. Thank you. Look forward to it. Take care. You too. Take care. Well, friends, you heard it today. There's much work that needs to be done, but we are the ones who can get it done. We thank you for being a part of our broadcast. We don't take your support lightly. As always, love God, love people, live on purpose. Fresh, hot, come on. It's the brown bag. It's the brown bag.